Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 24th. 2022 just received an email with some breaking news from the New York Times. When the New York Times announces breaking news, it must be important. Uh, according to the Times, it's a piece written by John uh, Farrell, who has a new biography of Ted Kennedy coming out. I think it's this week. And actually, uh, Farrell's going to be on the show later this week. Uh, Farrell reveals that... Um, Samuel Alito, Supreme Court Justice, assured Ted Kennedy in 2005 of respect for Roe versus Wade, at least, I guess, according uh, to the senator, Senator Kennedy, who's no longer around, uh, quoting Alito, uh, Kennedy said, I'm a believer in precedence, more, I guess, pro-abortion arguments in terms of uh, the legal ramifications of the destruction of Roe versus Wade. We've had a number of pro-abortion arguments on, on the show over the last few months. One with the English feminist, uh, Catherine Angel, who believes that uh, uh, girls need to take sexual risks if they're to grow up to become women. She has an interesting new book out, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy. We also did a show recently with Dahlia Lithwick, the, um, the legal correspondent for Slate on the destructive power of the Supreme Court. Uh, Dahlia has a new book out too called Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. More pro-abortion arguments, I think, in that book. And we're following up with more pro-abortion arguments in... Uh, a book called No Choice, The Destruction of Roe versus Wade and the Fight to Protect a Fundamental American Right with my um, guest today, Becca Andrews, a very uh, ubiquitous investigative reporter. The book is just out. It got fast forwarded by its publisher uh, for political reasons, obviously because of the destruction of Roe versus Wade. Uh, Becca is joining us from a car park in... Uh, Denver, Colorado. Becca, I'm curious as to the to the title of uh, the, the subtitle of your book in the context of Dahlia Lithwick's book. She talks about the battle to save America, and you talk about the fight to protect a fundamental American right. What's so American about this fight? What's so American about the abortion issue? Oh, that's a good question. I should start by confessing that I haven't read Dahlia's book yet. It is in my TBR pile. Um, I mean, if we think about the ideals in which this country were was founded on, you know, a lot of it is about citizenship and a lot of it is about keeping the government sort of out of personal affairs. Abortion falls really squarely within those rights, correct? I mean, it's it's a personal decision. It's a personal medical decision. It's not something that the government should be involved in. Um, and that's even a popular conservative argument that I'm using here. So um, I think that kind of gets to like the history of why I feel like abortion is a fundamental American right. Um, 
but it's also just, you know, we as Americans are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can you have any of those things if you're being forced to carry a pregnancy? Do you think it's ironic, Becca, that progressives, the left, are now using uh, ideals about Americanness to promote their arguments? It hasn't always been the case. Often the left and progressives have actually been rather critical of what America stands for. I think there are nuances within that. Um, so I think that progressives are often criticized critical of blind nationalism, um, but not necessarily patriotism, right? So I think a lot of progressives are really proud to be American and to fight for American ideals and and to um, really invest in what it means to be free. We just want freedom for everyone and not a select few. Uh, your book, and you, and you announced this on, on Twitter, is being fast-tracked because of the Roe versus Wade decision. Um, how surprising did you find it? I'm guessing not very. No, not very. I mean, I, I did think originally when we were conceiving of this book that the court would slowly chip away at the rights established in Roe versus Wade. Um, it was very clear, the, the makeup of the court made it very clear that that's like where things were going. Um, I covered the arguments for the Supreme Court in December and the judges' interactions with the legal arguments there made it very clear that they were quite interested in overturning precedent and overturning Roe. Um, I still did hold some hope that it would be, it wouldn't be like a wholesale overturn, that it would be, you know, a step in that direction instead. Um, so there was a little bit of scrambling when it came to that. But yeah, I think we all knew that um, it wasn't going to be good news. Uh you mentioned that Dahlia's book, which is actually very good, is on your, your reading list on your bedside table, mm -hmm. Lady Justice. Yeah, she's, she's fantastic. A, yeah, she's a legal correspondent. You should watch the interview, too. She's very, very good, very compelling. You're not really um, a legal specialist. You're not coming at this as the legal no. correspondent of Mother Jones or any of the other magazines you, you write for. How would you define your journalistic identity in this issue and the nature of the book where do you see your sweet spot in uh, no choice uh there are a couple of different things so you know i am at heart a long-form magazine reporter which means that i really like to follow people around i really like to get to um issues of humanity and the complications and the messiness of being human um but I also come from an anti-abortion evangelical background. Um, I was evangelical and anti-abortion until I was 21 or so. Um, so I also really understand the other side of things and the arguments therein. So this book for me was a chance to um, take that perspective and show how someone can change their perspective based on, you know, actually interacting with people who need abortion care and seeing firsthand what it means when someone is denied abortion care or when they have to jump through hoops to get abortion. Um, really for me, like the whole point of the book was to be able to narratively humanize the issue. 
you say in the book, for 23 years, I was vehemently anti-abortion. My parents raised my sister and me in a tiny evangelical Methodist church in our West Tennessee farming community, the sort of place where casseroles and cakes appear when something bad befalls anyone within the county lines. How has that community responded to the new Becca Andrews? I mean, I'm not I, sure. Maybe that's not a fair way of putting it to uh, to, to the Becca Andrews who, who, who wrote No Choice. You know, I have got nothing but support, honestly. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. In terms of understanding uh, what, what you just said, understanding the uh, anti-abortion community, is there anything about their argument that is quote-unquote American? I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I'm guessing that if a, an anti-abortion activist believer was on the show in debate with you, they might talk about the rights of the unborn. How, how would you respond to that argument? Yeah, I mean, I understand that argument. I remember the visceral nature of believing that abortion is murder. So if you truly believe that abortion is murder, then you think that you're defending life, right? And what's more American than that? So, you know, I, I do understand where that comes from and how gripping that belief can be. Um, and so I don't, I think you, you'll find in the book that I don't dismiss that. Um, I think it's very powerful and I, I think it's something worth um, considering with empathy. However, um, I also think that if you spend enough time with people who are having to go through this, who need abortion care for whatever reason, they don't need a reason, but for whatever reason, then I think that kind of starts to change, or at least I hope it does, because I think the humanity of someone who has been on this earth for however many years sort of outweighs the potential for humanity at some point, right? Do you think that, I mean, this is obviously an enormously controversial subject. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know this way better than I do. Um, and you've been on both sides of it. Do you think that the Roe versus Wade decision was a compromise between the two sides? Man, um, yeah, that's more of a question for Dahlia. I I don't know. I, I think that you know, Trump got the opportunity to fundamentally change the Supreme Court for at least a generation and he took it and this is where we're at. And I, I don't see a lot of compromise in there. Um, no, no, sorry. I, I think you misunderstood my question. I mean, the okay. original Roe versus Wade decision. So this oh, is oh, oh, yeah. really, uh, I, I mean, some people might argue that America, you know, judging from the Madisonian nature of the constitution, that America is a country where you have government designed to compromise faction and that the whole point of government is to avoid civil war, essentially. And mm -hmm. uh, so the, the original Roe versus Wade decision was one where no one was particularly happy, but nonetheless offered a kind of compromise between these two sides. Yes, that is correct. Um, the... 
Roe versus Wade ruling was rooted in a right to privacy um, and was really based more on uh, physician rights than it was the right to abortion specifically. Um, it's something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg took issue with in her writings. Um, and then, as we know, it, it sort of set a foundation that wasn't particularly stable for the rest of time because now it's gone. Um, I think that, and I write this in the book, you know, I think that things are really bad now. And I'm not saying that I'm glad that Roe v. Wade was overturned because I think that would be an ignorant thing to say. But um, I do think this gives us an opportunity to build something that's hopefully better and more inclusive and that protects more pregnant people who seek care. Uh, the book suggests that the poor suffered suffer the most in a, in a post-Roe world. You, you wrote a piece for Rolling Stone talking about post-Roe Alabama. And the book broadly suggests that this only is going to compound inequality between the rich and poor. Um, do you think that that inequality and that injustice, is that itself un-American? <laughs> wow, you're really, you're really coming in hot today. Um, yeah, I mean. In a good or a bad way. I mean, is that a fair question? Yes, that's, that's a completely fair question. I mean, I think, yes, I think America has, as much as we love to talk about equality, um, America has been a fundamentally unequal nation since its inception, right? So white people came in and they colonized land that didn't belong to them, first of all. And then, of course, we brought in enslaved people and like... So there's a there's a history here, but I don't think that we are necessarily um, I don't think our future is dictated by that history. Um, I think that it's worth interrogating and worth learning about and thinking through these inequalities. But I, you know, I would certainly love a future where there's less of an inequality between um, the rich and the poor and white people and people of color and all of that. As you said at the beginning of this conversation, your sweet spot is as an investigative reporter. You get out in the people. You're not a someone working from a desk in the New York Times building. You work for Mother Jones. You've been all over the South in particular. I work for Reckon News, actually. I'm not okay. for Mother Jones. Apologize. Um, okay. What are you seeing, Becca, on the ground that that? that we coastal elites aren't seeing? What's what's happening in America on this particular post-Roe front? Yeah, um, so certainly the hardest part uh, for me personally has been seeing people denied care um, the day after, or the week rather after the ruling came down. I took a trip down to Montgomery, Alabama, um, where I watched people pull into the parking lot and be told that abortion is no longer legal in the state of Alabama. So seeing those facial expressions on those women, it's not something that I'm going to be able to forget ever. Um, that has been gutting. Um, seeing the ways that anti-abortion groups have really been mobilizing in this moment has also been interesting. Um, a lot of them are moving from states where abortion has already been banned to states that we think of as safe haven states, states that have pledged to protect the right to abortion. So Illinois, New York, California, Washington, 
those sorts of states. Um, and I think that, you know, the anti-abortion folks are not done. Like, this was a great victory for them, but they're not finished by any means. And I, I think that this has really um, emboldened them and is also really motivating them to continue their fight. Anyone, of course, speaking about Montgomery, Alabama, one thinks of civil struggle for civil yeah. rights. Um, you wrote a piece for the New Republic about how um, an underground network of ministers and rabbis help women get abortions before Roe. That has, at least in my mind, ramifications of the underground road in terms of the flight against slavery. Are there comparisons in your view, Becca, between the fight now against it to defend abortion and the fights in the 19th century against slavery? No, that's not a parallel that I would draw. Um, I think they're, they're two very different things. And I think that um, the civil rights movement is, is its own thing. But are there strategies, language that can be borrowed from the fight against slavery or even the, the civil rights fight in terms of the post-Roe world? Yes, and that's something that you see in activism broadly, right? The civil rights movement was massive. Um, so a lot of, actually it's interesting, a lot of abortion activists and anti-abortion activists uh, borrow from civil rights language and strategy um, in their missions. Um, so one of the first uh, anti-abortion leaders in the country was really obsessed with Martin Luther King and really liked quoting him um, as a source of inspiration for his mission, it was misguided, and I take issue with the framing, but that's, you know, that's what he was operating off of, um, and I think a lot of, particularly in the South, a lot of folks who are in abortion rights organizing, you know, also have some connection to the civil rights movement, and, and that informs their work deeply. MLK, of course, was a highly religious man, a religious leader, and he brought that language to the struggle against racism. Um, you, you also grew up, as you suggested earlier, in an evangelical family, and you've taken some of, I guess, what you learned as a child and turned it on, on its head, uh, and, and some of that's in No Choice and in your work, uh, your journalism work. Um, do you think that... Everybody on left, both on the left and the right, need to get beyond the language of religion uh, on these incredibly divisive issues. I mean, after all, the anti-abortion movement is driven mostly and financed by evangelical Christians. Yeah, uh, but I do also think that you know, some of the most powerful conversations I had for the book were with people of faith are pro-choice, are pro-abortion rights. Um, so I don't, I, I mean, I do see a lot of people who do this work because their faith instructs them to. So like the clergy consultation service, uh, which you referenced earlier, was a pre-row um, network of priests and rabbis and faith leaders who helped women get abortion care before row. Um, so I I don't know. I mean, faith and religion is such a tricky thing and it's such a, a nuanced thing. It's not to, to equate religion with evangelicalism in America 
and stop there, I think would be a mistake. I did a show uh, last week also with another investigative report, another young woman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, Kyle Spencer. She has a new book out called Raising Them Right, The Untold Story of America's Ultra-Conservative Youth Movement and Its Plot for Power. She suggests that there's essentially a cultural war going on on American campuses between well-financed young people's conservative uh, groups uh, and others. Uh, Do you think, do do you see that? I mean, maybe not so much formally on campus. I understand that, you know, you're not doing the same work as Kyle Spencer, but are you seeing young people also being mobilized in the anti-abortion movement? Absolutely. And I think Kyle is really onto something with her book. I also haven't read it yet, but do intend to. Um, I don't know if you've read Hannah Rosen's God's Harvard about Liberty University in Virginia. No, no, him. It is such a striking account of what that looks like and what it looks like to go to a school that is um, really built around mobilizing evangelicals and, and sort of raising up uh, soldiers for Christ. Um, but yes, I mean, the day that I was covering uh, oral arguments at the Supreme Court outside, there were a lot of young anti-abortion people, um, children with you know tape over their mouths uh, to signify speaking out for those who can't speak for themselves, children with signs, that kind of thing. Um, there were also you know some young folks on the pro-abortion side, but I would say that there were more on the anti side. So yes, I think that is very much a thing and um, very much look forward to reading Kyle's analysis. Do you fear a descent into violence on this? Oh, yes, but it's not something that everyone I know within abortion rights is very aware of the threat of violence, right? but it's not something that can sort of control them. They're very dedicated to their work. They feel like it's worth the risk. They feel like it's important to move through the world in a way that's smart, um, but not necessarily paranoid. Um, And I think they're always kind of struggling with that balance. Um, I have been talking to a source of mine who uh, leads an abortion fund in the South. Uh, She recently left the South because of the level of harassment that she was getting. She felt like she had to flee her home. Um, That is obviously very disturbing. Um, So, yeah, I I do fear it, but I also don't want to overstate it, if that makes sense. We did a show with the great writer Margaret Atwood last year, Democracy, Citizenship, and, of course, Dystopian Fiction, in which she is one of the great masters, her book, the Handmaid's Tale, in some ways, in our conversation, seems to predict what's happening in America. And she acknowledged that in our conversation. She said she was looking down from Canada at America. Is the world that she imagined in Handmaid's Tale, this cult of fecundity, this attack on eroticism, this violent male autocracy, do you think it's coming into being? Do you see it in your trips around America? Atwood's dystopia actually in reality? I think the themes are certainly in line. Um, I, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is a brilliant classic work of fiction. um, And I think that 
it's very valuable and I love that book so much. Um, but I, I also think as a journalist that often um, truth can be kind of stranger than fiction. So, but yes, I mean, I, I think like the fundamentals of the book where she's talking about how um, conservative men are taking over and controlling women's bodies and reproduction is being heavily policed. I mean, that's definitely something that, that we're seeing now and has the potential to get worse, certainly. What do you think she got wrong or what did she miss in Handmaid's Tale? She couldn't get everything right, of course. Oh, I don't think she got anything wrong. It's a work of fiction, right? Like she built a world that was hers. Um, and I, I mean, Margaret Atwood is one of the greats. I certainly am in no position to criticize her. As we roll around, I mean, the elections are coming up, the midterms next month, and then we'll be thinking about 2024. What are you looking to from Joe Biden and anyone else who chooses to run in the uh, for, for the de Democratic nomination? I'm assuming that abortion and these issues won't get discussed within the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Democrats are starting to realize that they have to step up and they have to say the word abortion instead of hiding behind sort of oblique references to women's choice. Um, that's a huge difference, I think, that we see in this election cycle. Um, I do think that Republicans are, are reluctant to talk about it, but in some ways are being forced to, what with like the Herschel Walker scandal in Georgia. Um, he's a candidate running for U.S. Senate against Reverend Raphael Warnock, um, who paid a woman to have an abortion and denied it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's certainly a thing that's coming up. Lindsey Graham proposed the 15-week national ban on abortion um, that was very much part of the conversation um, several weeks ago and still is. Um, so I think that, yeah, abortion is going to be a huge issue in the midterms and whether or not candidates want to talk about it clear or not, like, it's very present. I mean, you had everyone in this country that has the ability to reproduce, we all lost a human right. Like, that's massive. Becca, when I, when I see what's happening within the Republican Party, particularly in the context of, you brought him up, Herschel Walker, the level of hypocrisy is so astonishing, it's so self-evident, that one can only conclude, given that the election's still going to be pretty close and, and many millions of Republicans are going to show up and vote for a candidate like Herschel Walker, that ultimately they're, they're not really thinking of this in a moral sense. There's something behind it. Uh, is, is there something in that? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there is a voting block that prioritizes anti-abortion agenda above all else, right? And it's because of that visceral belief that they're saving lives, that, that they're stopping murder or stopping a, a genocide or however they like to frame it um so yeah like that exists but i don't think that um everyone feels that way i don't think that every conservative feels that way um i think a lot of reporters on the ground in georgia recently have found that in fact there are a lot of conservatives who are distancing themselves from walker as a candidate because they're ill at ease with the way that he's handled this and their ill at ease with the fact that he lied about it repeatedly. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's because I'm an optimist and I really believe in people despite 
everything. Um, but I don't know. I just don't think it's quite that cut and dry. There, there are absolutely people who are coming at this from a hypocritical place. Um, but I like to hope that it's not the majority. Yeah, when you use the word ill at ease, I think that's a, a, a euphemism. I mean, the original assumption, Becca, was that this was going to lose votes for Republicans, and then mm -hmm. no one was quite sure. Bernie Sanders recently suggested that, uh, that Democrats shouldn't only run on the abortion issue. But given your argument about how abortion, uh, the, the issue, the, the post-Roe world is going to be so much worse for the poor, I'm assuming that someone like Bernie Sanders would actually like your argument. It would be an attempt to square the circle and suggest that abortion should be uh, a central plank in the Democratic manifesto, not just because of the abortion issue, but because of justice and economics. Yeah, absolutely. One second. I'm very sorry. I'm traveling with my sister. Um, yes. So... I actually took some issue with uh, Senator Sanders' argument because there isn't anyone who's running on just an abortion rights platform in the Democratic Party. That's not a thing that exists, right? So I didn't totally understand why he felt the need to call that out. Um, I also think that, and I, I've said this a few times, not in this interview, but but in other places, that you know, in the run-up to the midterms, we've talked about abortion as an issue that is sort of lacking behind the economy. Um, but abortion rights and, and the economy are, are tightly bound together, right? Abortion is an economic issue. It's, there have been so many studies that have shown that if someone is denied an abortion, it affects their economic, whoa, it affects their economic lives for the rest of their lives. Um, it's hard to recover from something like that financially, from having a child that you weren't prepared to care for, that you didn't have the resources to care for. Um, so I think that, um, I hope that Senator Sanders would also be considering it from that angle. Well, Becca, thank you so much for thank you. Uh, giving us the time to talk. I know you're busy from your car in Denver. Uh, finally, again, congratulations, if that's the right word. I'm not sure when the we should also be we, we we should be celebrating no choice no choice coming out now but um uh, but it's still congratulations on finishing the books an important book thank you uh, no choice a destruction of roe versus wade and the fight to protect a, a fundamental american right and congratulations on all your other important work on the ground uh, what else would you suggest uh, people read uh, we talked about the litwick book um, and also about the the Kyle Spencer book. So I gave you a reading list. Now you can give my viewers and listeners a reading list, Becca. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if we're talking about reproductive justice specifically, anything that Michelle Goodwin writes is fantastic. Uh, she has this book called Policing the Womb that really gets into uh, the criminalization of pregnancy. And I found it extremely illuminating in my book research. Um, also, Leslie, Reagan's When Abortion Was a Crime was written uh, either late 70s or early 80s and really gets at, at what things were like before the Roe v. Wade ruling in this country. Um, and there was another, it's on the tip of my tongue, 
Killing the Black Body is also uh, an important read by Dorothy Roberts and an important primer to uh, reproductive justice and reproductive justice issues.